Last weekend, I did something that felt risky and subversive. I bought a milkshake. It was a hot summer day, and my husband and I donned our masks and went to an ice cream parlor. We each ordered a cookies and cream milkshake, and then walked over to a quiet street to drink them. We'd slip our masks down, take a sip, and pull our masks back up the minute we saw someone approaching. New York City recently began letting people dine at bars and restaurants outside, so places all over Brooklyn have set up outdoor seating with tables six feet apart. So far, I've been too scared to go to any of them, even though the COVID numbers in the city are quite low. It's not really that I think it's dangerous, I just read about coronavirus all day for work, so I'd personally have a hard time turning that part of my brain off while eating a sandwich near a stranger. The milkshake was the first time I've consumed anything out in a public space since March. It was absolutely delicious, and it almost felt like normal, though in retrospect, the intense rush of joy I felt while simply drinking a milkshake was a sign that it'll be some time before the world truly looks normal again. I'm Anna Rothschild, and this is Podcast 19 from 538. Today, we're going to learn about a breakthrough in our search for a vaccine. And we'll talk about air. How does the air around us carry COVID? And what can we do to purify air in places like schools and offices? But first, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp filed a lawsuit on Thursday against Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms over her city's mask mandate. On Wednesday, he released an executive order with new COVID restrictions that do not include mandatory mask wearing. In the lawsuit, he says local governments can't make rules that are more stringent than those of the state. Also this week, Walmart, Target, CVS, and other national retailers began mandating that shoppers across the country would need to wear masks in their stores, regardless of local or state guidelines. Clearly, mask mandates have become a polarizing issue in America, and they've highlighted the tension between public health and civil liberties. This concern, of course, is not unique to COVID. Americans have claimed their civil liberties were violated by all sorts of public health interventions, like when states banned smoking in some public spaces. So what does make a fair public health policy, and where do the courts stand on this issue? I spoke with Wendy Parmat, a professor at Northeastern University and an expert on public health law. She told me about a case that's informed over a century of debate. Well, Jacobson versus Massachusetts from 1905 is considered the Supreme Court's preeminent public health case. It concerned a vaccine mandate in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, there was a smallpox outbreak at the time. Compared to COVID, it was very small. Um, and the requirement the city passed pursuant to a state law requirement that everybody show evidence of being vaccinated um, or pay a $5 fine. Okay. It wasn't compulsory vaccination, although many, many jurisdictions were doing that at that time. Henning Jacobson, a Swedish minister living in Cambridge, refused to get vaccinated and was fined. 
His case made it all the way to the Supreme Court, which affirmed Massachusetts' vaccination law. The court in Jacobson really affirmed first that individual liberty is not unlimited. The court recognized that real liberty, as the court called it, um, exists in society. We never have the right to do everything we do want to do if it's going to hurt our neighbor, right? Like if I want to blow up dynamite in my backyard, well, given the size of my lot, I don't have the right to play with dynamite in my neighborhood, right? Real liberty is liberty in community, under law. We are all subject to legal restraints. On the other hand, the court also recognized that individuals do have liberty in their body, bodily integrity, you know, and that there are limits to that and that courts must be there when government restrictions are unreasonable, oppressive, palpably in violation of fundamental law. Through the years, this case has been cited in a huge variety of public health disputes, including some that today are reviled. But the world has changed a lot in the past century, and Jacobson is still cited today. Jacobson's been used a lot since COVID started. Um, so pretty much almost all of the claims that are challenging or were challenging the various state emergency orders Almost all of these cases cite to Jacobson. How many cases would you guess have cited Jacobson since COVID started, since March? There were 53 decided cases that raised First Amendment or abortion issues and cited Jacobson between March 20th and May 29th. And just to clarify, those abortion cases were related to COVID as well. They involved disputes over whether abortion was seen as an essential service during shutdowns. Over the years, public health issues with partisan bents on both sides of the aisle have cited Jacobson. And that makes sense, given all of its nuances. And so the court both made the case for limiting what individuals can do in the name of public health and made a very strong recognition that, you know, we have the liberty to stay healthy, right? Um, and also that at the same time recognize that the courts must stay open and have a role to play in making sure that those public health powers are not abused, misused, used in an oppressive manner. But what is an abuse of power? The answer is obviously subjective. But I spoke with Lawrence Gostin to get his opinion. He's the director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown University. You've spent your career focusing on issues like this, looking at how public health measures impact people's civil liberties. In the U.S. specifically, where do we draw the line? There are, there are never clear lines, you know, because we're always operating in conditions of some scientific uncertainty. But I think, you know, the basic bones of it are clear to me. So what, what are they? Um, if we have an intervention, um, we have to ask the following questions. Is there good evidence that it would actually be significantly beneficial to the health and safety of the population, that it would save lives? Um, Secondly, are there any less restrictive ways we could achieve the same objective? That is, you know, is it proportionate? Third, do we do it fairly, you know, so that we have equity and we treat everybody fairly and, and alike? 
um, and 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 then don't be overly punitive. Um, you need to give due process of law and abide by the rule of law. You can't just simply say it's an emergency. You know, the rule of law is gone. I asked both Gostin and Parmet why some public health regulations, like mask mandates, are more controversial than others. They both gave roughly the same two answers a general libertarian streak in America, and poor or inconsistent messaging from people in power. Parmat explained that with clear messaging, views on these hot-button issues often change over time. There was very strong resistance in the early years, and this might be hard to remember, to uh, seatbelt laws. One thing that we've seen is in many of these cases, over time, the resistance fades. What feels intrusive on Monday, you know, by a week from Monday, just kind of feels like, well, that's the norm. You know, people are not up in arms these days, by and large. We don't have large movements opposed to seatbelt laws. People buckle up without thinking about it. It's just kind of what you do, like you brush your teeth, you put on your seatbelt. Not a lot of political angst about it. One of the problems we have right now is, you know, we don't have the luxury of the time to message and inculcate changes in habits and norms. And what has made this problem, you know, if we're focusing on masks, for example, what has made it more problematic is that the messaging has been inconsistent. Public health law is effective when it's got the politics and the messaging and the social forces on its side. We can't, we can't order our way into being a society that believes that there's a pandemic, believes that people have responsibility to care for their neighbors, right? We've always had contestation over public health laws since the colonial period. We've always had a strong libertarian streak in our society, and we've always cherished our individual rights. Um, It's hard, though, to think of a period in which the politics about a pandemic have been as heated, and in which a pandemic has been viewed by so many Americans through such a polarizing and partisan perspective. And we're really handicapping, you know, our public health and our public health law. Um, And unfortunately, we're all suffering because of that. Early on in the pandemic, we all learned that COVID spread through respiratory droplets. You know, particles that spew from your nose or mouth when you cough or sneeze. But recently, scientists have been finding evidence that COVID can become airborne and spread through particles called aerosols. Our reporter, Kaylee Rogers, is here to explain the intricacies of air. So to start off, can you explain the difference between those two modes of transmission? Right, so we're really talking about the same thing, just different sizes. So the sort of respiratory droplets that we're kind of more familiar with and we've all been trying to avoid spreading are are larger. Um, they're just, you know, wet droplets of, of a mix of mucus and saliva and 
lovely things that come out of your nose and mouth when you sneeze or cough. Um, and the virus can sort of hitch a ride on those droplets and that's how it can spread to other people, either from them picking it up with their hands and touching their face, or it could directly land on your face and get into your body that way. And so that's one mode of transmission that we're pretty familiar with now. And aerosols are the same thing. They're just much smaller. And these can be produced when you're just talking or laughing or even just breathing. And because they're smaller, the liquid around them will evaporate much more quickly and before they have a chance to hit the ground, which means that they're going to become light enough to be airborne. They're sort of floating on the air like a feather or something else that's very lightweight. Um, and so this is a different mode of transmission because we found that when viruses or small particles are contained in aerosols like this, they can hang around in the air for a long period of time. Do we have any sense how long an aerosol might actually be able to live in a room for? Right. So they've done some early studies um, with COVID. They've been able to find COVID RNA in, in the air in rooms uh, after many hours. That's not the same thing as the live virus, but it sort of like shows that the virus was there. They've also in a lab setting been able to detect um, aerosols with the virus in it, a viable virus, a live virus, up to three hours later. So we're not certain, you know, we're still learning as with everything with COVID. Uh, but there is a possibility that these could linger around for, for several hours at a time. It does seem to be a pretty hardy virus, even when it's in this aerosol state. What evidence do we have that the virus actually is being transmitted through aerosols? So we have a couple studies, like the one I mentioned about the, the lab test, seeing that it can survive in this way. There's also just a number of case studies where the evidence that it was spread by aerosol is much more robust than the evidence that it was spread in any other way. So you may have heard about the restaurant in China where there was one table with a person who was uh, infectious with COVID and they spread it to several other tables, including tables that were much further away that they had no contact with. You know, they weren't talking to them. They weren't coughing near them. There was no real physical way for any kind of respiratory droplets to get to these other tables. However, they were in the same path of an air conditioning vent that was sort of pushing the air through the restaurant from table to table. And so the likelihood that that was an aerosol spread versus a respiratory droplet spread is just, it's just much higher. So there's no 100% certainty in any of this, but many experts, in fact, more than 200 experts wrote a letter to the World Health Organization saying this, they think there's enough evidence that we should be taking it seriously and, and taking precautions. Right. I mean, and this is an especially important question right now, as a lot of places are beginning to open up again. There's a lot of talk about kids going back to school. So we really need to figure out, especially in confined spaces, how do we make sure that we keep our air clean and purified? Exactly. So when you're outside, this aerosol spread is not as much of a concern because the fresh air and just having so much space to go out into means that any kind of aerosols that a person is expelling are going to be dispersed and diluted really quickly. So it's going to be a lot harder for anybody to get a, a concentrated amount of the virus enough to actually infect them. But when you're in an enclosed space, these aerosols could potentially build up and, and start to create a concentration that actually could cause uh, infection. When we're talking about masks, is that a way to prevent these larger droplets or is it also a way to prevent the aerosols you've talked about as well? 
It could potentially protect against either of them, although they're mostly designed for these larger droplets just because they're going to be so big that they're going to hit the mask first um, and probably get caught in the mask. The mask, if it's not an N95, is probably not going to filter these smaller particles, but it could slow them down and sort of prevent them from spreading too far. So what are some different strategies um, for how we'll prevent transmission, particularly in indoor spaces, of droplets versus aerosolized particles? Right. So, I mean, something as simple, especially if you're just in your own home, as opening a window or opening doors and windows can increase airflow and start to kind of dilute that air and clean it out. So you're having new fresh air coming in. You're having some of that air with the aerosols taken out. And so, again, you're not getting that concentration of aerosols. But the problem with windows is with schools or offices, obviously, that's not always an ideal scenario. If it's very hot or very cold, if it's raining or snowing, you're not necessarily going to want to have the windows open. And in a lot of like office buildings, for example, the windows don't even open at all. So instead, we kind of have to turn our attention to HVAC systems or heating, ventilation and air conditioning systems that are in most buildings and taking a look at what they're doing and whether it's enough to be cleaning that air and getting fresh air in. So what kind of air filters or purifiers might actually help with this? So we know a little bit just from previous work that's been done from the CDC, and there's some guidelines that have been come that have come up from ASHRAE. They're the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers. Um, they've been putting a lot of thoughts into guidelines for this, and so basically there's sort of two steps that you want to be doing. You want to be changing the full air in a room as much as possible in an hour, so that you're constantly getting new, fresh, clean air in. Um, and that can be done through like piping in fresh air from outside. It can also be done through cleaning the air that's already in there and then recirculating it. Um, and to clean it, you're going to need some filtration system. And so based on the size of the aerosol particles, based on what we know about aerosol particles in general, um, we're going to need a, a slightly higher filtration system than what you would typically see in a school or an office building, which is more so going to be filtering out for dust and body odor and just kind of the normal stuff that is spreading around in, in an open space. What sort of buildings currently have the kind of filters you'd need um, to, to battle COVID? Well, I know that a lot of people have talked about HEPA filters, for example. That's a pretty high standard. We wouldn't necessarily need that high of a standard, according to ASHRAE. But for example, a building that would have that sort of high efficiency filtration system in their air conditioning units already would be pretty rare. It would be something like the office building next to a coal mining plant where they're trying to filter out very serious particulates that are in the air. Your average school is not going to have anything near the level that we would need to filter out these aerosols. And they also probably aren't doing enough air exchanges where you're completely recycling or completely changing the air in a room to get the concentration of the aerosols low enough to where people feel comfortable and, and think that the risk would be lowered. So the filters that might work, can you tell me a little bit more about them? Like, how do they work? What are they made of? Stuff like that? Right. So filters are designed to filter out particles of, of different sizes. So a lower quality filter, you can think of sort of like a, a colander, you know, it's going to let through some things and not others. A higher quality is going to let through even fewer things and, and is able to catch smaller and smaller particles. Um, and so for COVID and the sort of size of the, the aerosols that we're dealing with, there's a certain standard of filter that is recommended by ASHRAE and, and is considered the, the level that we would need to, to start to filter out these aerosols um, if we were to open up schools and offices again. 
Is there a way they categorize how fine the filters are to be able to trap these super tiny particles? Yeah, so there's actually a, a measurement, uh, a rating system. It's called the, the Minimum Efficiency Reporting Value, or MERV. Um, we're learning all kinds of new terms with COVID all the time, but MERV is one of these ones. Um, and that, that just tells you how fine or how uh, efficient a filter is at, at catching smaller and smaller particles. So a MERV rating of one um, can capture about 20% of particles that are 3 to 10 microns in size. A hair, a human hair is about 50 microns inside in size. Um, but for these aerosols that we're talking about, they're actually much, much smaller. They're usually uh, less than five microns. And so for that, you would need a filter that's a, a, at least a MERV 13. Do you have any sense of how many buildings currently have um, MERV 13 filters? These filters typically, you know, if you look at recommendations from CDC and stuff, these typically would have only been in healthcare settings uh, previously, and now they're being recommended for more, you know, schools and offices. So typically, this is not something that you would see in your average school. How easy would it be to install these filters? So that's really going to be case by case. So in some cases, you might have an HVAC system in a school where changing the filter would be literally as simple as changing a filter, like physically putting in a different one, and it's a MERV 13, and your system could handle it. Um, the more fine a filter is, the more strength you need in, in your system to be able to push the air through, obviously. Um, but, but some HVAC systems might be perfectly capable of doing that. And there's a lot of variation in the types of filters you can get that meet this standard. But in other cases, uh, you might not be able to do that. And you're, to, to upgrade, you would have to kind of do a, a full retrofit of your HVAC system, which would obviously be a lot more expensive. So it's going to be case by case. There are also portable air cleaners like that you could put in individual rooms that could potentially kind of close that gap so that if you're not able to upgrade your filtration system in your existing HVAC, you can kind of use these in place of that. Personally, I'm curious how um, available those portable filters are. Are those things that are really meant for um, commercial spaces or large buildings, or are they things that regular old people can just buy online? Right. Yeah. So actually, the the regular old people ones that you could get for an apartment or a home are much more affordable because you don't have to clean as much air in an apartment, obviously, as you would in a school. Um, so those are available, and you can find those online to get something to to move and clean enough air to be effective in an office space, especially an open office space, or a classroom is going to be a little bit more money. And you can also get, uh, you know, MERV 13 standard filters for air conditioner units. One of the experts I spoke to says that that's what he does. He, he switched out the, the filter in his AC with a higher standard one. So that's, that's definitely something you can do at home. Oh, interesting. I have to admit that very early in the pandemic, my husband and I invested in um, a sort of giant table-sized air filter. <laughs> and I have to say, my husband and I have no idea if this thing actually works at all, um, but it makes us feel better. And at the very least, the placebo effect is real. And I feel like from that perspective, it keeps us healthier. But I don't know what the actual science behind it. That's fair. I mean, some of the experts I spoke to did warn against, you know, if, if you see something online that's like super affordable and seems too good to be true, it's probably not doing anything. You want to do your research. And if, if you're really concerned, or especially if you're trying to open a school or a business, 
um, you're going to want to make sure that it's actually meeting engineering standards and isn't just some magic box that somebody's selling online that, you know, clears 100% of bacteria in the air or some nonsense. <laughs> yeah, ours has um, a light that um, goes from blue to red as there are more particles that it's filtering. And so you can see just how dirty your air is. Oh, but wow. I, I think this is kind of, um, it's probably it's probably pseudoscience. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that uh, the president has mentioned is using UV light to kill the virus. And I mean, I know that when I used to work in a lab, we had UV hoods that were supposed to kill the kill viruses and bacteria on our lab equipment. Um, is there any talk about using UV to kill the virus in these aerosolized particles? Yeah, so that's something that's being discussed and, and has been used in the past in different capacities. UV filters can be really effective in that they do kill microorganisms, they kill viruses. The problem is that there are some limitations to it, especially when you're trying to install it in like a school setting. So UV filters, for example, have to be exposed to the virus for a prolonged period of time in order to actually kill it. They can't just kind of float by in the air and, and hope to catch it. And using UV filters can also cause skin damage, eye damage. It also produces ozone. So there's just kind of some limitations to what kind of system you might be able to set up with that. Lastly, I really want to emphasize that the the respiratory droplet mode of transmission, it's not as if that went away or has been replaced by aerosols or, you know, we found out that that's not really how it spreads. Uh, there's still plenty of evidence that this is how COVID is spreading. And so even if we're able to come up with better standards for air filtration, air purification, that kind of thing, we still want to be using the best practices that we already learned, especially in an enclosed space. So wearing our mask, social distancing, and, and good hygiene with washing hands and surfaces. Um, because if we leave that aside, then it doesn't really matter if you have the best air filtration system in the world. Um, if somebody sneezes on you, you can still get COVID. Thank you so much, Kaylee. I'm, I always learn so much from you. So thank you for sharing your air knowledge with me. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. And now for a little good news. This week, the biotech company Moderna published encouraging results from a phase one trial for their mRNA vaccine. Longtime listeners will remember that mRNA vaccines are ones made from a snippet of viral genetic material. The body reads the genetic material and produces a harmless coronavirus protein, one that can't make you sick, but will train your immune system to recognize the virus. Moderna's vaccine was one of the first to get tried in humans, way back in March. This initial trial was meant to test the vaccine for safety and immunogenicity. In other words, whether the vaccine actually makes you produce antibodies and T-cells that will allow you to fight COVID if you ever get infected in the future. The study also looked at dosage. How much of the vaccine do you need to produce an immune response? Phase one studies are typically small, and this one was no different. It included 45 healthy people who got low, medium, or high doses of the Moderna vaccine, and then a second dose a month later. After the second vaccination, the scientists took a blood sample to see if the patient's blood contained T-cells and antibodies that could neutralize COVID. All of the volunteers had produced significant antibodies, similar to the highest levels you'd find in people who had gotten the virus. 
Over half of the volunteers reported mild or moderate side effects, things like muscle pain and fatigue, and a small number of people who got the highest dose experienced more severe side effects, like a high fever. None of those effects, however, was considered serious enough to bar the vaccine from moving on to the next phase of clinical trials. In fact, the Moderna vaccine has already entered phase two of clinical trials and is being tested in 600 adults. But buoyed by these results, the company announced they'd be starting a phase three trial this summer. The test will include 30,000 people. Half will be given a moderate dose of the vaccine and the other half will be given a placebo. A phase three trial will be really important to know if this vaccine works. Remember, right now, researchers have only seen an antibody response in the lab, but this large trial will allow scientists to see if people who are given the vaccine are actually less likely to get the coronavirus than people who aren't. Further trials will also be important to learn whether different people respond differently to the vaccine. This study only included adults under 55, but older adults with weaker immune systems sometimes need different vaccines or doses. A small study like this one, meant mostly for safety, can really only tell us so much. So we haven't found a panacea for this pandemic, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Jake Arlo. Chadwick Matlin is our executive producer. I hope you all get a chance to drink a milkshake or find something similarly delightful to enjoy before I see you again next week. <laughs>